Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson! You say you want some revelation, well here you go. It's gonna blow your freaking mind. Greetings, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the weekly Mormon News Roundup, where DBase is going to ruminate on the great spacious VI. Today is April 16, 2023. This is episode 54, where we're going to talk about President Nelson being honored with the uh, Mandela Gandhi Peace Prize. Brad Wilcox is giving the commencement at BYU-Idaho, and David Glenn, uh, David Glenn Hatch at BYU-Hawaii, the devotional, is sparking some controversy, and Laurie Vallow, the doomsday mom, the sensational news coverage is just getting started and much, much more. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm at uh, mormonnewsroundup.org. That's www.mormonnewsroundup.org. Or you can send me an email to colob at mormonnewsroundup.org. Now, we were supposed to have uh, Jonathan Streeter on uh, this uh, episode. Unfortunately, he um, he backed out. But we do uh, we did put onto Patreon, he was able to, um, uh, we did put a bonus episode up on Patreon. So if you come on over to Patreon, you can see uh, some of the episode that we recorded with Jonathan Streeter from Thoughts on Things and Stuff over there. And that does bring us to our Mormon News Roundup joke of the week. Did you hear about the family that left all their possessions to dwell in the wilderness? It was intense. In tense, T-E-N-T-S, intense, First Nephi. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. That does bring us to our first news article of the week. The uh, church has provided an update on Elder Holland's health. As you may recall from General Conference, Elder Holland came down with COVID-19, and apparently he was in a rather uh, poor health. I wish him and his family all of the best. And what this article says is that he has been excused from all uh, church responsibilities because, unfortunately, he has begun dialysis for a kidney condition and his comorbidities are making his COVID diagnosis um, rather uh, challenging for him. And again, I wish him all the best. He is not going to be uh, speaking at Southern Utah University. He was supposed to be the commencement speaker for that, but with his COVID diagnosis and his poor health, he is not going to be doing so. Southern Utah University has confirmed that uh, in light of the recent announcements regarding Dr. Jeffrey R. Holland's health conditions, he has been excused from all assignments for at least two months and has confirmed that he will no longer be attending or speaking at Southern Utah University's commencement ceremony. We extend our well wishes to Dr. Holland and hope for a full recovery. And I would like to uh, echo that sentiment as well. Now, that reminds me of one of my favorite memes, and that's from uh, the Avengers. And that's where Loki says, well, we have an army. And Iron Man says, oh, we have Elder Holland. And Loki says, <laughs> he doesn't say anything to that. Our next article was published on April 10th, uh, 2023 from KSL. And its prosecutors say that Lori Vallow Daybell was motivated by money, power, and sex as trial begins. And uh, that's according to prosecutor Lindsey Blake, who gave the state of Idaho's opening argument last Monday in the trial of Vallow Daybell, who is charged with conspiring uh, to murder and grand theft of, of the deaths of her two children, JJ and Tylee. Um, and this is really, really um, going to be a sensational news story. And I also found the sensational coverage of this uh, this uh, doomsday trial, which um, I find very remarkable. Well, it's got a jury, 12 of them, six alternates, and the openings begin on Monday. And the story they are going to be told is you can't write it for Hollywood. Let's put it that way. It's zombies and possessed and kids being killed because of it and husbands and I, I, I can't even I would need five hours I don't have that what I do have is one big issue and that is is that jury going to be comprised of a lot of Mormons 
FLDS members, LDS members, I don't know, because East Idaho has a lot of them. In fact, Idaho, a quarter of the population is Latter-day Saints, Mormons. And we don't know, because every time they were asked about the religion, <laughs> the judge shut off the microphone. So the reporters have no idea who's religious on that panel, who isn't. And the only reason I'm so frustrated about it is because it matters, because the church sent everybody a letter saying that they weren't allowed to help in the investigation. Prosecutors, the state, anybody, police, let me read it for you. This one came, it's a real humdinger, let me tell you. Back in 2020, this came out from the church leaders uh, injecting themselves into this, saying, we remind leaders and members of a longstanding policy that church leaders should not involve themselves in civil or criminal cases regarding members in their units, quorums, or organizations without first consulting with church legal counsel. However well-intentioned, church leaders sharing information in legal proceedings can sometimes be misinterpreted and even damaging. Following the church's policy also keeps the church from being inappropriately implicated in legal matters. Are you kidding me? You got to call your church before you can answer the police and their questions? Well, understandably, like Lori Vallow's lawyer was really mad. She, uh, this is what, uh, they called it a code of silence. This was the response that Lori's defense attorney gave. The LDS church has told approximately 26% of the residents of the state of Idaho to contact church legal counsel to enter into a code of silence and to only discuss their potential knowledge of this case and any other civil or criminal case after filtering said knowledge through the lens that is the LDS church. These LDS residents make up possibly jury pool members, witnesses, judges, prosecutors, police officers, detectives, deputies, police chiefs, captains, and other elected and non-elected officials throughout the state of Idaho. Holy Dinah, what a mess. And we weren't allowed to hear what they were asking during jury selection because the mic was turned off. Not good. Secret justice. Give me a break. Yeah, so I probably should have intro that clip a little bit better. That was Ashley Banfield on News Nation. That is the t type of sensational news coverage that we are going to see a lot more of. Um, it's it's going to be absolutely off the hook. Uh, I, I, I'm watching this trial with great anticipation. And uh, yeah, I guess we are not going to find out how many Mormons are going to be on this jury because, uh, again, that is something that um, is not going to be disclosed to the public. I find that to be very remarkable. I, I think that journalists, so-called journalists like Ashley here, are a bit ignorant when it comes to Mormon culture because she's, she, she talked about FLDS. Uh, is, uh, there's a lot of FLDS members in East Idaho. I, I really don't think that that is the case. So I think that a lot of these journalists are, are pretty ignorant. And this trial is just going to it's going to be sensational. And you're going to see the ignorance of the so-called mainstream media on full display. Now, our next article in the news is uh, out of Arizona. Again, this was from Michael Resendez on the Associated Press on April 11th of 2023. The Arizona Supreme Court has ruled that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints can refuse to answer uh, questions or turn over documents under a state law that exempts religious officials from having to report child sex abuse if they learn of the crime during a confessional setting. So uh, the history of this is that the lower court, when this originally went to trial, this was back in... Um, uh, you know, this this was back last summer when it really broke. The lower court said that because Paul Adams had posted his sexual abuse of his two children that had gone on for years, because he posted it to the uh, to the web, that there was no more priest penitent privilege because he doesn't get that privilege because he made it public. Okay, so uh, Judge Cardinal, the very first judge in this particular case, said that yes, Paul Adams, you voided your priest penitent privilege. You don't get that anymore. Okay, well th that was appealed 
because the church really wants to have that priest penitent privilege. So the church appealed that, the church's lawyers um, appealed that to the uh, appeals court in, uh, I believe it was in Cochise County, Arizona. Well, the appeals court turned out, overturned the lower court's decision and said, no, well, whether you posted it online or not, the priest penitent privilege is still in effect. Well, the, the victims' families, they don't like that ruling. So that was then appealed to the Arizona Supreme Court. We have a final ruling in this, which basically, which the church considers to be a big win for the church because it says that the church, the priest penitent privilege will still remain strong, whether Paul Adams posted his uh, disgusting materials online or not, it doesn't matter that the, the clergy who are involved with this case, they don't have to disclose the information that was um, that they received when it was during a confessional setting. Now, this week, the church also released a perspective from the Deseret News, which, of course, the church owns. This was from Carl Herstein on April 12, 2023. And it says eliminating the clergy exemption can have unintended consequences. And studies on mandatory reporting show that these laws don't always work as intended. So the church, a lot of times they will release these type of editorials to the Deseret News, which basically leaks the church's uh, personal position. The church is signaling that their position is that uh, priest penitent privilege should not be overturned. Now, I do want to say that this particular article makes a number of good points that, yes, uh, overturning the priest penitent privilege, that doesn't necessarily um, increase reporting and decrease abuse. Um, there's a number of studies that have shown that there's unintended consequences and that every that there's not 100% positive consequences from revealing the priest penitent privilege. Now, I'm of the personal opinion that it probably should be um, uh, repealed or at least modified in some, um, in, in some way. But um, yeah, the church, they're right in this particular article. And the church also released another uh, article here, which says that the Arizona Supreme Court upholds Latter-day Saint priest penitent privilege in the sex abuse case. This is from Todd Walsh on April 12, 2023. And the court reveals that the confidential spiritual confessions made to Latter-day Saint Bishop was protected by Arizona law. And they seem to be championing, um, they seem to be celebrating this Arizona Supreme Court case, saying that the church does not need to disclose the, um, the, 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 the information that gained during the confessional. Now, when, I when you read through this particular article here, uh, the, the church's version of events that we get when you read through this article seem to be in contrast to what Michael Resendez is saying in the AP sex abuse case. There is two really totally different um, takes on what happened, on the timelines involved, on the entire process. And um, it's just like we're living in two different realities. But the church is really concerned about this AP sex abuse case. That's why we got two articles this week on it. You know, there's lots of unfortunate, unfortunately, there's a great deal of uh, sexual assault cases that um, happen from uh, Mormon leaders or Mormon clergy that happen every single week. The church does not respond to the vast majority of those. The fact that the church released two articles this week about this case shows that um, the church is very concerned about this. You know, somebody released a meme this week that talked about this particular case, and it has a woman sitting in front of our bishop uh, for a so-called bishop's interview. And uh, the bishop asked her, well, do you follow the law of chastity? And her response is, well, do you report all child sex abuse? And the Mormon bishop says, well, it's legal for me not to report it. And then she says, it's also legal for me to be unchaste. I guess this is supposed to be an ironic take here, but the idea behind it is, what is our standard of morality supposed to be? Is our standard of morality to only do that which is we're legally required to do? Because in Arizona, the bishops are not legally required to disclose sex abuse if it's, it's, if it's during a confessional setting. Now, in Arizona, you can report it. It's a, a state where you can report it if you want to. Those bishops would not have gotten in trouble or done anything against the law if they had reported it. 
But the question is, what is our morality supposed to be? Are we supposed to do the bare minimum according to the law? Or are we supposed to do our very best to protect sexual abuse victims? That's the question. Now, our next article here is uh, on April 7, 2023. This is from courthousenews.com. And Mormon Ponzi scheme defendant was released on bond. So prosecutors say that Matthew Beasley duped investors out of $460 million. Now, I've, we've reported on this or covered this a great deal of, of times. He, he, he defrauded about 900 mostly Mormon um, people in the greater Las Vegas area out of almost $500 million. And the thing about it is, is that he has been locked in jail for that entire time. It's been uh, about a year and a half, I think, since he's been locked up. Well, he's been granted that bail here, which I find to be very remarkable. If you read the article, you know, the way that he was apprehended was um, really something. You know, um, let me read from the article. When three officers knocked on Matthew Beasley's door, who is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to my knowledge, he answered with a gun in his hand and pointed it at his own head. He later pointed the gun at the agents who shot him, according to the FBI. He then barricaded himself inside of his residence for four hours. This is a horrible standoff. And for me, for someone like that, who has defrauded so many people of hundreds of millions of dollars, who was involved with a violent, violent, um, when, when the police came to him, a violent uh, refusal to be arrested. Uh, he got shot. He pointed a gun at his own head. He pointed a gun at other officers. And he has taken hundreds of million dollars from Latter-day Saints, the vast majority of which people will never get back. The idea that he is released on bond, I find to be very troubling. And, and one other note in this particular article, there was somebody who was killed with regards to this Ponzi scheme. It was a, it was a reporter from the, one of the Las Vegas papers, I think it was the Las Vegas Herald, who was getting too close to uncovering the truth behind this and a couple of other related matters. And he ended up getting killed. So we have one person who's been killed. We have another person who was shot and, and had a standoff with the police, uh, pointed a gun at his head, pointed a gun at police. And now that person has made bond and can be walking around before this trial is supposed to take place. Um, this is a really sick individual and a really, really sad um, a really, really sad article. Let me know your thoughts on this article by um, sending me an email to kolob at mormonnewsroundup.org. That's K-O-L-O-B at mormonnewsroundup.org. Now, our next article here is from abc.abc4.com, and it was posted on April 7, 2023 by Megan Pickett. So this was Southern Utah News. A suicide note found in Enoch family alleged murder-suicide. So Michael Haight took his own life and also the lives of his wife and all of his children and his mother-in-law um, about two months ago. And the suicide note has been found for this particularly um, repugnant uh, tragedy. And um, I guess we now know some of the why as to why Michael Haight did what he did based upon this particular um, on this particular suicide note. They had filed for divorce uh, back. Uh, he and his wife, Tasha, had filed for divorce back in December. And that was a few weeks before the tragedy, which happened uh, just last January. Let me read a little bit from that suicide note. Quote, I have worked my whole life for the ideal of an eternal family. I have been an honorable good man who has tried to do my best to provide for my family, end quote. And then he, tra uh, he kind of transitions to talk about his wife. And let me read that, quote, I have never seen someone who is so intent on finding faults in others. I have tried helping, but it generally backfires, and I seem always to get blame. 
I would rather not, I would rather rot in hell than to put up with another day of this manipulation and control over me. I've been complained about every step of the way that I work too much, put my church calling before my wife, and on and on and on. She has been so awful to me and my family for years. This is nonsense, and I can't handle it for one more day. We will not be a burden on society, end quote. One of the most troubling aspects of this particular case is the fact that um, the, de the Department of Child uh, and Family Services in the state of Utah, um, this is from a Salt Lake Tribune article, they, um, the record says that uh, Michael Haight's wife, Tausha, she went to Latter-day Saint leaders several times to report concerns about Michael, but unfortunately, those interactions were never passed on to the police records show. So here we have two back-to-back -back articles here where we had um, someone in Arizona who was perpetrating child abuse, they um, talked to their uh, Mormon leaders about it and that information did not go to the police and absolute tragedy struck. Then we have another article here where Michael Hout's wife um, went to Mormon leaders as well saying that there's something not right about her husband and that she was greatly concerned. And both of these cases, multiple times of people who are being abused or in abuse situations went to their leaders of the church and said, um, you know, that something horrible is happening. And in both of these particular circumstances, the church leaders, they did absolutely nothing. And people are, are, are having a big issue with that. Our next article here was dropped by the Widow's Might Report, which is a new analysis of LDS church land ownership in the United States. So the church owns at least 2.3 million acres of uh, private uh, land in the United States. And this is one out of every 550 acres of privately held land. So the church owns about uh, almost 2% of the state of Utah. It owns 3% of the state of Florida. It owns 1% of the state of Nebraska. And the church um, was really just one of the most massive landowners um, in, the entire, in the entire nation. Now, this what I found interesting here is that uh, the uh, second slide on this, and by the way, we link to all of this in our show notes. The church acreage near top of U.S. private landowners, uh, the church is almost the nearest, uh, largest private U.S. landowner. So according to the widow's might, the Emerson family um, is head of the class, the largest private holder of real estate in the United States, owning almost $2.5 billion worth of real estate. But the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is second, just barely behind the Emerson family for the total number of acres that um, the church owns. I find that to be very remarkable. On third is a Ted Turner, then we have fourth, the Reed family, and then it rounds out near the bottom, you have uh, people like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. So yeah, the church does own a great deal of land. What I find this to be very remarkable is the fact that the Truth and Transparency Organization, which uh, basically was an outgrowth of uh, Mormon, Mormon leaks, Mormon WikiLeaks, which was from uh, Ryan McKnight. They basically have since gone out of business. Last year, they did an analysis that says the LDS church has the most valuable private real estate portfolio in the United States, evidence suggests. Well, the Widow's Might report seems to contradict this previous analysis. The Truth and Transparency said that LDS church is number one in real estate. The Widow's Might report says the LDS church is number two in real estate. So there's a slightly different uh, ways that both of these uh, folks got to their end conclusions. But no matter how you slice it, the church does own a great deal of real estate. And I, 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 was, I was not familiar with the Emerson family. Uh, they're the largest private holder of real estate in the United States, according to the Widow's Might report. I was definitely not familiar with them prior to um, reading these articles. But Red Emerson, um, he became one of the, the large, the potentially the largest landowner in the United States um, just a few years ago, and he basically he got as much <laughs> he got as much money as he did by um, 
uh, making billions in the timber industry in the Pacific Northwest. Now, there's a lot of Mormons in the news this week for crime. And unfortunately, you know, as the headlines, you know, with uh, news coverage, what leads the headlines is, is you know, uh, blood, sex and crime. And there's another uh, Mormon article here of Mormons being in the news this week. And this is from uh, LAMag.com here. And this was uh, the mugshots of Jacob Kingston and Isaiah Kingston. Well, uh, LDS gas tycoon and Mormon polygamist face sentencing for $1 billion biofuel scam. So the main bad actors in a sprawling scam who formed a very unlikely alliance to defraud the government face a judge five years after the dramatic arrests. And this was released on April 6th by Michelle McPhee. This is a very long article here. And the Mormons who are involved with this, they are part of the so-called Kingston clan. They are polygamists. And they um, really ran a really diabolical um, scam for a decade that built the U.S. government out of uh, more than $1 billion in false claims because they ran a bio, they, they were part of a biofuel scam where they supposedly were, um, you know, in California, you can get uh, tax receipts for being in the green energy sector. And, and they really, they started off with a legitimate business, but eventually it just all became a sham. You know, they, they, they built so much money from the government that they didn't even know what to do with all of the money that they had. They ended up uh, parking it overseas in places like Turkey. And as polygamists here with the Kingston clan, you know, they talked about how, you know, cheating the U.S. government out of taxes. They call it uh, milking the beast or, or, you know, they call it bleeding or milking the beast. You know, and this goes really all the way back to, you know, it's 100 years old of Mormons, you know, trying to take advantage of the United States government. And it's really, um, really, really a sick case. And they said that this is one of the largest cases of fraud in the entire United States government history, a billion, billion dollars with a B of uh, fake tax, uh, uh, of scams and fake uh, fake tax receipts to the government over decades, uh, a decade of time. This is really incredible. You know, <laughs> I, it really takes me back to the LDS church and the SEC fine. You know, when it comes to how Mormons interact with the government, really, um, we have the article of faith that says that we believe in, honoring, uh, believe in honoring and sustaining the law. But when it actually comes into putting that into practice, it doesn't seem like uh, whether it's FLDS, Kingston clan, polygamists or the LDS church, it doesn't really matter what the government says, we, we, you know, we can just do whatever we want because we're following the laws of God and the laws of God trump the laws of man. Now, our next article here is a BYU-Hawaii devotional really has gone viral and unfortunately for all of the wrong reasons. So David Glenn Hatch is a famous uh, Mormon pianist and he gave a devotional at BYU-Hawaii in this last week, which has really stoked a great deal of controversy. Somebody put together a supercut of this on TikTok, and I don't have time to analyze the entire talk where he, he was basically alternating between doctrinal pronouncements and then playing the piano. And somebody put this together, and um, it seems to have gone viral for all of the wrong, uh, wrong reasons. Let me play this for you. The great deceiver's specialty is his keen interest in your feelings and opinions, and personal preferences. He's quite progressive that way and wants to hear all about it. Your concerns are his concerns and he knows exactly which rendition of Jesus is pertinent to your cause. Lately, it is likely to be a socially relevant liberal Jesus who somehow cares more about your truth than the truth he came to personify, proclaim, and die for. The deceiver dishes out a new gospel and I, I hate this, just so you know. I don't like that word hate, but this one thing I do hate, 
the gospel of your own truth. You ever heard it, brothers and sisters? Oh, my truth is. And then he whispers to all of us, ah, that's much better. To be clear, he won't tell you to give up your faith in Jesus, but that obviously some of his outdated theology needs revamping because it no longer works today. A good chunk of it is offensive enough to be considered a hate crime, especially that bit about marriage and sexuality. I mean, Jesus told his followers to love one another, not judge one another, right? So who are you to judge how others love? That's just how stealthily and insidiously the father of lies leads members of this church astray. He distorts God's word and presents new, different gospel to each generation. And he knows how to place deceit in our hearts. He's well acquainted with our carnal desire to rule and worship ourselves. And he's happy to show us how. Simply put, Satan wants to destroy people. Now, when this first hit the web last week, um, I really I watched it and I, I I thought that there was much ado about nothing. But every single time that I rewatch it, it seems to be rather I, I don't know. There's there's just something off about it. It's something. It's hard to put my finger on it, but there's just some kind of an essence that I don't know that rubs me the wrong way. And by the way, that this first was brought to light, I think, to the wider Mormon community by uh, White Cat Prophecy, who we've had on this particular podcast. I think he is the first one who really. Um, realize that there's something that um, was somewhat wrong with this particular uh, devotional. And I want to review some of the comments from the comment section on YouTube because I think that they're very instructive. Um, his message puts people on edge. Um, although I would like to say to each their own, I struggle to understand why BYU would give this man a microphone. His version of Jesus is not the one that I have come to know. Awkward. Um, I have a front row seat to this guy's anger and distress. Hopefully someday he comes to terms with his own life and lives authentically. Um, I am referring to his hair. Uh, this is a theatrical performance that you've all been waiting for. Cognitive dissonance, the musical. Um, I appreciate the directness. Everyone is focusing on the My Truth section, which was good, but the rest of the talk was great too. Wow, just wow. I could have watched Liberace and Jim Baker and come away with a better feeling. I hope the church will be loving and accepting when this man comes out as he truly is. Self-hate is so sad to witness. Like I said, there's just something uncomfortable about his delivery, about his mannerisms. It's not necessarily what he said, although what he said, I don't, it, it's hard to see that that comes from a place of love. It's hard for me to judge the motives of another person. I'm not really sure, but it's just, there's something about his delivery that if you look at that YouTube comment section, which is on the BYU Hawaii official webpage okay and most people who follow the byu of uh, hawaii official webpage they're not anti-mormon critics they're usually good faithful members of the church and the vast majority of the comments seem to indicate that um, he missed the mark with this particular address and white cat prophecy uh, tweeted out that he's putting together his dream team of mormon speakers and it consists of dallin h oaks uh, brad wilcox jeffrey r holland and david glenn hatch um, that is a dream team that I don't know. That dream team needs a name. I don't know if dream team does it the amount of justice that it needs. But let's just say that uh, David Glenn Hatch's uh, uh, devotional was not well received. Now, we have some general conference follow-ups from this last general conference, which just took place a couple of weeks ago. And Jenna Reese from Religion News Services, uh, she brought this fact up that Mormons have finally discovered Holy Week. Why now? 
and she posted this on April uh, April eighth, twenty twenty three. And there was um you know the church has been putting out ads of uh you know the various Holy Week uh, uh, days like uh, Palm Sunday and things like that. If you go into the General Conference keyword search and you search for Palm Sunday. Um, there was more references to Palm Sunday at this last general conference than there have been to references to Palm Sunday from every single other general conference talk combined. And people are just wondering, well, why is it that the church now seems to be getting behind uh, Holy Week? And to be quite frank with you, I, I don't know all of my Holy Week. Um, I, I don't know all of my my Good Fridays. I don't know all of my Palm Sundays. I don't know all of my and like Christmas, I don't know my Advent calendar very well. I, I think I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to uh, Holy Week stuff. And that's uh, something that was uncovered also by Ryan Birch here. He tweeted out, um, you know, he's a famous statistician, uh, research director there on uh, from My Faith Accounts, and he's um, from uh, Illinois University as uh, as a memory serves. He said that overall, 81% of folks know that Easter commemorates the res uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what's interesting here is when you rank Mormons. Um, and their knowledge of uh, Easter with regards to other faith traditions and even atheists and agnostics, guess what? Mormons are pathetically average when it comes to Easter knowledge, even though Mormons as, uh, as a whole are very religiously literate. In fact, Mormons as a whole are um, the most religiously literate folks in the United States, second only to Jews. But uh, people who know uh, more about uh, Easter would be uh, Orthodox, uh, uh, even nothing in particular, agnostics, Protestants, atheists. All of those people know more than Mormons do about Holy Week. And I don't know, it seems like this last general conference, it seems like the church leadership was uh, trying to uh, change that. What I find interesting also is that somebody uh, t uh, tweeted this out here on Reddit, and they said, if you search for Mormons in Holy Week just a couple of days before general conference, it says that Latter-day Saints, and this is from the official church news, it says, uh, church, uh, churchofjesuschrist.org, that Latter-day Saints conduct Easter Sunday services but do not follow the religious observances of Ash Wednesday, Lent, or the Holy Week. But then after the general conference, it was it was changed. And it says that Latter-day Saints do believe in the biblical account of Palm Sunday and the Holy Week and that they uh, follow, you know, they partake of the sacrament and communion in accordance with what the Holy Week is and Easter week. And when you search for um, Easter week and Holy Week um, on Google and on the church's news site, there seems to be a messaging shift. I just kind of wonder why it is that we are embracing Easter now so much. And I guess somebody tweeted this out and I, I don't. I can't refute it. And they said um, uh, the, the Latter-day Saints embracing Easter are kind of saying, hey, we want to be mainstream. We don't want to be weird. Please like us. And it's kind of a messaging uh, uh, change in the campaign. Now, we do have a couple of follow ups that are still happening from the um, from the general conference. And one has become the new water bottle challenge. <laughs> You've heard of the ice bucket challenge. Well, now we have the water bottle challenge where people are taking videos of themselves and posting it. Uh, where they're crushing up the water bottles and not just a little bit but they are really crushing these water bottles for recycling all the way down and this is kind of an ode to uh, what um, elder haney said in the general conference about the importance of crushing water bottles i think this is the meme that you know people follow the prophet this is one of the memes that is going to be enduring for sure and uh, quite honestly folks you know this is probably one of the best messages to come out of a uh, general conference to begin with I mean, recycling has real-world positive benefits. I don't think this is anything to joke around about, even though it is a little bit funny. But no, this is one of the best messages, from my mind, of the Takeaway General Conference, because you're seeing an increase in people doing recycling. And I just think that that's fantastic. Now, Bill Real of Mormon Discussions, he does, he does point out one small kink or, or one small problem with uh, the story. And that's that if you put, though, uh, if you 
crush your water bottle and put it in the recycling by putting the cap back on, which is what President Nelson did, the, uh, the water will not come out of that, uh, of that water bottle until the plastic has, uh, you know, has, uh, has decomposed. And that could take hundreds or even thousands of years. So the best practice would be to keep the uh, lid off of the water bottle so that those little drops of water um, can be used for other people. That is a small issue with the story. Now, some of the other fallout from General Conference, uh, Peggy Fletcher Stack uh, tweeted this out, that of the uh, 33 speakers at last week's uh, LDS uh, General Conference, only two were women. So that's two out of 33. That's not even 1%. What message does that send about the importance of women's voices in the male-dominated faith? And if you read the um, if you read the uh, comments that go along the, with this, it, you know you get uh, comments like this: uh, "Hey, I'm a lifetime member, uh, devout LDS woman here. Women are not important ever. Men don't think to ask and uh, ask about us, and if they do, they don't listen. We plan to bring refreshments and sometimes get hit on in the temple. Misogyny sucks for us." And another comment here, I watch conference with my wife and she and I discuss every talk together. She often teaches and coaches me to understand literally the most important voice in my life is my eternal companion. Latter-day Saints teach that exaltation only happens through temple marriage and women are essential. So there's definitely um, a split between, um, you know, the faithful people and uh, people who say, you know, we need more representation of women. Um, uh, you know, female church leaders also, when it comes to how they are quoted, we have nine female church leaders in the church and they only make up 1.9% of conference quotations, whereas the 98% uh, of the leaders that apostles quote are men. So, yeah, I mean, people are saying it's a little bit of a problem. And one other fallout that uh, I saw here from LDSDaily.com here, this was a, a published just a, a week ago on March 27th. It says, gospel question and answer. What can I do if I don't like general conference? I thought that that would be a very interesting article to uh, read through. And guess what happens? If you read through this article, it says, hey, if you don't like General Conference, well, um, you should just watch it anyway. There is no other solution. There is no other problem. Um, there, there, there is no other solution. You should prayerfully partake of it. Think of Revelation as strands of rope and rely on the spirit. So, yeah, if you don't like conference, that's, this article basically says, huh, that's too bad for you. Now, our next article here was published on April 11, 2023. This is the um, uh, published by the Charlotte Observer. The title of the article is First Mormon Temple Coming to Charlotte as Church Membership Searches What to Know. So I, I find it interesting here that the church is saying that they are surging in North Carolina. So in the article, the church spokesperson says that the church population in Western North Carolina was 24,000 in 2013, but now it is 30,000. So that is a growth of 6,000 members over the course of a decade, or just very simply about 600 new members per year. That's about a rise in membership of about 2% annually of Latter-day Saints. Now, North Carolina uh, uh, as a whole averaged, I don't know, about 1.3% growth over the last decade. So we have 2% versus 1.3%. That, that, that's a surge. And don't forget this, that the church doesn't actually drop many people from the membership roles who don't consider themselves to be members or Latter-day Saints anymore. So if that were factored in, we would very likely see a negative growth rate. So, you know, the church often gets interviewed for the release of the new temples. And the church, a church spokesperson for new temples, when they're interviewed, will only make a comment about member population in that area of a new temple if the population growth is positive. If there is a negative population growth, like the number of the California temples that have gone up in the last couple of years where our California membership is really declining, we make no membership of the of positive growth rate at that time. 
So uh, the church, it's very likely, just to sum up here, the church is very likely not achieving a replacement rate for membership in North Carolina, nor anywhere else in North Carolina, uh, in North, uh, North America, for, as a matter of fact. You know, the church in the last two years only grew, in the entire United States, for two years worth of growth, only grew about 50,000 members. That is not achieving uh, the so-called replacement rate. And that is a fact that David Bednar basically confirmed that last year, I believe it was in May, at the National Press Club briefing. Now, our next article here was released by the Church News itself. This is a really great article here, and this was published on 12th of April, 2023. The church donates $8.7 million to Red Cross for equipment, mobile blood donation centers, and programs, and for those who have cancer and sickle cell disease. So uh, the donation is part of an ongoing collaboration between the church and the Red Cross, which has um, they've been uh, great partners for a number of years. In fact, in 2022, the church remained the largest single a Red Cross blood drive partner with more than 70,000 volunteer blood donors participating in over 2,000 drives nationwide through the first nine months of the year. So this is a really nice positive story for the church. Now, our next article here I find absolutely fascinating. This is from Outkick.com on April 12, 2023 by Grayson Weir. And this is college football's fastest recruit gets NIL offers to help fund his Mormon mission. And so I find this to be very, very uh, remarkable here. So Gaitlin Blair may be the fastest high school football player in the country. And he's being recruited very heavily to go to something like, I don't know, 25 different schools, mostly in the uh, Western United States, but really across the entire country. He's uh, also one of the fastest high schoolers in the country. He's a sprinter and he recorded a 10 point, uh, uh, 18 second, 100 meter dash, which is absolutely incredible. Now, um, he Blair here, he would be an instant boost to any college roster. And what is very, very interesting about this is he has said that he is going to go on a mission directly after high school because, of course, now um, you can go on a mission when you're 18. So he's not going to be going to college right away, but he intends on to, to go on college. And what is the most amazing thing about this uh, uh, particular article is that Gatlin Blair's his college football recruitment has been unique. Um, his high school coach, Cameron Anderson, said that he has now seen how firsthand how money plays into the role of recruiting. And Kevin Anderson told The Atlantic that he said this quote, as one coach put it to me, I won't tell you who, but one of them said, coach, speed is expensive. And of course, college athletes now can be um, paid um, for their name, image, and likeness. And this is, uh, you know, this is this is the most incredible quote here. And this is from um, Cameron Anderson. Again, this is um, his particular coach here. He said that LDS missions cost money. It's not like you uh, go on a mission and the church pays for it. You've got to pay for all those things. But that, that's been offers from places beginning in that scope that would be an absolute blessing for him and his family. They're not afraid to collect off legitimate means of making money off his name and likeness, name, image, and likeness. And what we're getting from this incredible article here is that potential Mormon recruits, whether they're um, high, uh, football, basketball, track, whatever, Part of the recruitment process can be, according to this article, that those colleges would end up paying for their missions. And that is, uh, that is absolutely stunning to me. That is absolutely incredible. Let me know your thoughts on that by coming over to Twitter at, at NewsMormon, because I just find that to be amazing. And, and good for this uh, young man. Good for him. Now, President Nelson himself made a per, uh, released a personal message um, 
to talk about his thoughts on receiving this award, which is about seven and a half minutes long. If you come, um, we are going to link to all of these videos in our show notes. I find that to be very um, remarkable as well. If you look, this is from the church newsroom, which is the YouTube, um, the official YouTube channel of the church. If you look at the comment section on President Nelson's response, you're going to see um, a very effusive praise. There's not one negative comment. that I, I can only imagine that they've been sanitized out, but I am not sure. Says President Nelson is an incredible individual. I love his humility. Once again, as always, President Nelson demonstrates his true nature and humble leadership. President Nelson, I agree with you 100% about God loving all people. I love that there's so many people recognizing how our living prophet has touched the hearts of so many worldwide. And what a beautiful way to honor our dear prophet. We love you, President Nelson. Congratulations. Thank you. We love you, etc. That was a great message. God bless you, our dear prophet. Um, now, remember here, this is what I find remarkable about this entire thing, is that the BYU-Hawaii devotional is also from a church official account. And you will see, as we mentioned earlier, that the comments from the David Glenn Hatch's controversial BYU-Hawaii devotional, they don't appear to be sanitized. There is a great deal of vitriol and a huge amount of negative backlash on that particular devotional. But President Nelson, that's also this, this particular award here. This is from the church's official handle either. And there is absolutely, there's not even one negative comment. So it seems to me that the church does um, curate some of the com uh, comments of their official handles, uh, but not other ones. And it may be that um, BYU-Hawaii curates their own comments for their devotionals, and that's why they have not gotten around to sanitizing them. I'm, I'm really not sure. Now, our next article here is from uh, Brad R. Wilcox, who is the first counselor in the Young Men's Presidency, uh, Young Men's General Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He's back in the news once again here, folks. He is always in the news for some reason. Now, he has uh, well, he was promoted in the last general conference from second counselor to first counselor. And he is giving the BYU-Idaho commencement address. Yes, President uh, 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 Elder Holland, he's not able to make it to Southern Utah University, but uh, Brad Wilcox, he was able to make it up to BYU-Idaho. Now, he, um, what I want to discuss is he gave an analogy in this particular devotional. Uh, it wasn't a devotional. It was a, a keynote speaker address. It was about 15 minutes long. He gave an analogy regarding how the church, how, how basically how life is like one big cruise ship that we're all on the same ship here together, but members of the church are part of the crew. And I just want to discuss, uh, play that particular section here for you and give you a couple of brief thoughts. Our mortal experience could be compared to God sending all his children on a cruise ship from one shore to another shore. The journey is filled with opportunities to learn, grow, be happy, and progress, but it is also full of dangers. God loves all of his children and is concerned about their welfare. He does not want to lose any of them. So he invites those who are willing to become members of his crew. That's us, the children of the covenant. The Lord said, thou art my servant, O Israel. So when we look around on this cruise ship called Earth and we see other people sitting in lounge chairs drinking, gambling in casinos and partying late into the night and wonder why we can't, we must remember who we are. We are not ordinary passengers. We accepted the invitation to be members 
of the crew. We now have expectations passengers do not have. And before we become discouraged by all the extra obligations, let's remember that crew members get something that other passengers don't get. Mm -hmm. Compensation mm. for their work. As we keep our covenants with God, there is nothing we could ever be asked to do in Christ's church for which we have not already been well compensated. For we have been given a birthright. Think of it. Of all the people on the earth, God looks to us, the children of the covenant, his crew members, to help save the world. I wish we had time to go over his complete thoughts, but we just don't have time for that. This podcast could be too long. So I just want to talk about that cruise ship analogy, which I find to be very interesting. So a, a, a cruise ship crew, they are paid, right? They're paid for what it is that they do. That's their job. That, that's in contrast, though. If members of the church are supposed to be the crew, but that's a contrast because Latter-day Saint church members, they actually pay to work on the ship. They have to pay tithing. And if you think about the passengers on the ship, from his analogy, the passengers on the ship, that would be the world, you know, people who are not members of the church. Um, those persons there are actually, they're supposed to pay, but they're getting a free ride. It, the analogy is completely backwards. Crew members are supposed to be paid, but no, uh, crew members who are members of the church, they pay. And uh, members, uh, who, uh, members of the crews who are not members, they're supposed to be paying for their efforts, but no, people in the world, they don't pay the church. So the, the, it really falls down on its face as far as an analogy right off the bat. And I also want to, Elder Wilcox, Brother Wilcox, what compensation is, are you talking about here? As members of the crew, we work tirelessly for an entire lifetime with only the promise of compensation after we die. We're basically involved with the ultimate Joseph Smith treasure dig, where we keep digging for our entire lives, and we only find out if there's a treasure after we're dead. Now, Brad says that uh, God invites everyone to be part of the crew. No, Brad, God absolutely does not invite everyone to be a part of his crew. Their church has basically no proselyting um, presence in China, in Russia, and in many other countries. The church is basically absent from, I don't know, maybe 40% of the world. Um, the, the, we only have a missionary presence in maybe 60, tops 70% of the world. So no, God is not inviting everyone to be a part of the crew. A, a lot of people don't even know that they're on a cruise ship. Th that's the big difference here. There's millions and millions, there's billions actually of people on the earth who, um, are, are, who cannot receive the message um, of being part of the crew. People who are in remote villages in China, they have never even heard the word Mormon their entire life or Latter-day Saint to begin with. And don't forget that there's still lots, there's millions of people who are uncon uncontacted tribes who will never hear the message about joining the crew. And a couple of other uh, thoughts, you know, if you're a trans, if you're trans, if you're transgender, you really can't be part of the crew. No, yeah, they, that's, no, sorry, not for you. It, really, if you're gay, um, you can't be, a member of the crew either. I mean, you can sort of, I guess, be a little bit, but not not really. And if you're a woman, you also cannot be a full-fledged member of the crew either. It seems like to be part of this crew, this is in a very, very exclusive, um, a very, very exclusive uh, group of individuals. It's not that everyone is getting the invite for that. Now, um, as Brad, as he is a member of the crew, as one of the elite, elite members of the crew, because he's a general authority, he gets paid. 
And as the Widow's Whitehead report has brought out, he gets compensation, total compensation of $259,000 per year. Um, and he gets benefits. He gets health care. He gets retirement. Members of the church who are part of the crew, they don't receive any temporal benefits from joining the crew. It's really an apples and oranges comparison. Now, the other passengers, uh, it's interesting how Brad says that other passengers on the ship who are not part of the crew, how does he, um, how does he characterize those people? Well, he said flat out, if you're not part of the crew, then you're a sinner. You know, these people, they're gamblers. They drink, apparently they're getting drunk. They drink alcohol. Uh, they stay up late into the night. In fact, they're lazy. They just sit around on lounge chairs. Um, the people who you know, are part of the crew, you're the chosen ones. You're special. God loves you. If you're not part of the crew, then you're a sinner. You're going to hell. You're, you're a partier, and you're just lazy, and I don't know, you're stupid. Um, you know, Brad, he has worked hard his entire career to work as hard as he can to other, other people who are not members of the church. I find that to be very ironic because, technically speaking, um, because the church is a corporation soul, the only true member of the church, of the, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the only person who has any true membership benefits is Russell M. Nelson. And as far as the crew and uh, crew's uh, analogy is concerned, there's really a Scientology Sea Org vibe that goes with the ship analogy because, you know, Scientologists, they have all those Sea Org vessels. And it's just, it's really, really weird. At the end of his uh, talk, he um, wrote a new verse for I am a child of God. And I find that to be a, a rather interesting as well, because think about this, you know, you're graduating from college. This is a major step towards your adult life. You're, you're leaving your childhood behind. But for Brad Wilcox, no, you need to be reinforced that, yeah, even though you may be an adult now, no, you're just, you're just a kid. You're just a child. You know, it really reminds me of uh, Elder and Sister Runland's 2019 Young Adult Devotional where um, they talked about how we need to stay on the boat no matter what. And it seems like staying in the boat is a constant refrain that we are hearing from LDS church leaders. Now, our longtime co-host, Al, he um, is going to be back on the program next week. So you can look forward to hearing him. He and I ruminate on the Great and Specious Beehive. And uh, we uh, have a commitment here from the uh, Not So Molly Mormon podcast crew that they will be coming on this podcast uh, later this month. And shout out to Weird Alma for this episode's music. Thanks so much for ruminating with me on the Great and Spacious Beehive. And remember, remember, no unhallowed hand can stop this podcast from progressing so long. When it comes to nicknames of the church, such as LDS Church, the Mormon Church, to remove the Lord's name from the Lord's Church is a major victory for Satan. 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 Hey there, brothers and sisters. Thanks for listening to the Mormon News Roundup. And if you are enjoying this show, please consider making a donation. Patreon makes an important contribution to helping us ruminate on the great and spacious beehive here. So thanks so much to everyone for, for supporting us on Patreon.com.